0: G'day, folks, and welcome to this week's episode with Patrick Gaskin from Cardly.net. Now, what if I told you um, that there's a business that is doing $3 million in revenue with two staff, two staff, amazing, um, and it's not a SaaS business, by the way, it's not, a, it's not a recurring revenue subscription model, it is technology-led, but it's an absolutely fantastic business. So by the way, this is going to be a great episode for you for a few things. One, it's really going to challenge your thinking about actually variable cost versus fixed cost models. Two, I actually think many of you are going to realize that there are some missing opportunities to use um, uh, Patrick's business as a potential supplier for your business because I actually think he's got something that's really quite unique uh, and can really blend in very nicely with um, relationship-driven businesses, services, models, et cetera, et cetera. So listen to it for both of those reasons, but make sure you listen all the way to the end because I really uh, work with Patrick to unpack some of the key pieces of advice that have helped him um, get to where he's going that I think you're going to find uh, super instructive. So I really hope you enjoy listening to today's podcast. This is a really interesting um, founder that's on their on their way up uh, and I expect you'll see them go from 3 million to 30 million probably in a number of, uh, in a short number of years because that's really a fantastic model I've got like, Welcome to the Scale HQ podcast, your weekly injection of tips and insights into the secrets of scaling. I'm your host Sean Steele and I am obsessed with figuring out how to help founders just like you who are creating real value in the world to scale up so they can fulfill their potential. I do that each week by interviewing founders who successfully scaled, experts in all the areas of business that you need to master, interviews with founders who are still on the way up, and 10-minute tutorials and reflections from me based on my experiences in creating $100 bucks in revenue for four other companies over eight years. So let's dive in and see what gems we can find together on this week's episode of the Scale HQ Podcast. G'day, everybody, and welcome back to the Scale HQ podcast. If this is your first time, we are absolutely thrilled to have you. If you have been here many times before, I mean, this is almost episode 100. Uh, I think we're like maybe 90 or something, getting pretty close anyway. Um, my guest today is Patrick Gaskin uh, from Cardley. How are you today, Patrick? I'm really well. Thanks, Sean. Well, we are meeting for the first time um, today, Patrick, and um, uh, that means I don't know you very well, and you don't know very, me very well. But we'll uh, we'll sort that out over the next forty uh, odd minutes or so. Sounds but good. as I we were chatting a little bit um, offline, and the reason for our uh, chat today is probably I don't know, it might have been three months ago or so. I was you know we're just in the process of launching our first um, course, which is all about growth strategy and execution plans, called um, Scale Up Roadmap. And as part of that, I was um, building a, um, I don't want to share too much, but I I needed some um, customized cards um, for people that were associated with that course. And I was Googling around, you know, I've done different kinds of, um, you know, card delivery in different countries, you know, to my nephews or nieces or whatever. And I stumbled across cardly.net and um, I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, The UX was just beautiful. Everything was so simple and so elegant and so clean. You had all these great handwriting styles and I could build my own templates or I could use your templates. And you seem to have all these um, templates done by different artists. And I was actually, I mean, this is the first podcast I've done in almost hundred podcasts where I've seen a business where I've been so impressed that I thought I have to get that founder on the show just to find out how that is that they're building this business. Cause it really, um, it really blew me away. So um, well, congratulations you. to you. It really made a big impression um, uh, on me. It's maybe you can just kick us off uh, actually. Um, oh, I uh, sorry. Let me. Before I do that, I thought it was a US-based business that just right. happened to have an Australian distribution, you know, logistics capability. Yep. And then I looked down the bottom of the site and I saw that you had a PO box in Budrum, which, for those who don't know, the Sunshine Coast is about five minutes from my house uh, in Australia. And I was like, "Wow, you're even around the corner!" So, um, hence we here we are today. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. If you had been on the US side, it would have said a completely different address. So
1: it's uh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. But okay. um, yeah, look, it's uh, thank you. I mean, that's pretty humbling. Uh, We don't, we, you know, we get a little bit of feedback here and there, but it's also, it's always awesome to hear that someone's actually, you know, seen all that uh, hard work that's gone into that and actually appreciate it. So thank you.
0: They are a labour of love, these businesses, that is for sure. I'm sure there's been a lot of learnings for you on the way. Tell me about how, tell me, can you just give us a quick overview of what Cardly actually does and then talk to the genesis of the business?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, at its core, we're a technology company. We take what people type and and make it look like handwriting Um, and and essentially the real proposition is to allow you know people to connect and create meaningful engagement Uh, and that works in both two spheres a direct to customer type uh, offering which is just for consumers to come on and you know send friends and family cards and the like and then also from a b2b perspective we allow organizations like yourself um, and certainly plenty of others around the world um, to you know, create an account and, you know, upload contacts and and have, uh, you know, birthday cards, thank you cards, letters, postcards, you know, a bunch of other personalised mail go out um, and ultimately with the objective of driving greater engagement, uh, increased loyalty and often uh, transactional outcomes as well. So, uh, well, yeah, that's kind of uh, what we do. How we came about it uh, was not a straight line. They never are, right? And sorry, um, just on
0: the B2B side, yeah. it's also... A- Correct me if I'm wrong, but you also allow um, APIs and automation, do you, from things like Zapier? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, like that is a game changer. So, you Mm. know, for someone who's got, let's say you're a real estate agent and you've got a database and you know where their birthdays are, you know, their wife's birthdays, you know, their kids' names, like you're trying to really personalize everything, have something that can actually pick up your data, automate the process, push high quality great looking but personalized in a handwriting style card out and have the whole thing managed for you i just think is it's really uh, fantastic um, yeah and so and
1: you're right like that is absolutely how many people use it they will connect their crm uh and when someone gets to a certain point in the you know the customer life cycle they will yep. trigger things out to them um, and then yes always on stuff as well so i uh, uh, some of the examples that, that we see quite often um, are probably even less obvious than that. So, say for example, a plumber or a, a tradesperson performs a task for someone. Yeah. Um, they know that Google reviews and referrals is hugely important to their ability to be found online when people are searching for a local you know, service provider. Yep. So, what we do with those clients is, yeah, they likely connect their CRM to to Cardly in their Cardly account, and then when they you know, finish a finish a, a task or a, complete the job. Uh, automatically triggers out a thank you card and one of the things you may not have spotted but uh, that we do with that is that the, we can also include a personalized qr code so not only do right. you get this thank you card that sort of says hey sean thanks so much for, for using our services we really appreciate it they can also include a call to action that includes a qr code that's actually unique to you but goes to a say a review site or something like that yep. the beauty of that being unique to you is that we can actually then tell you hey these are the hundred cards you sent out. These are the ones that got scanned. They were, by, oh, they were wow. scanned by these people at this time. So we're taking oh, it, using that, we've been able to sort of take um, what which is largely a sort of an offline, more traditional way of engagement, but connecting it back into the digital sphere. So those QR yeah. codes can include UTM tags and other extended bits of, Detail that allow um, for the founders yeah.
0: that don't know what a UTM is. You want know, to just explain it what a UTM codes? Yes,
1: yeah, so basically it's just a tracking uh, means of tracking the the link, uh, adding it to the the extension of the URL, um, yep. so that you can actually yeah, have that feedback in and report on it, and and potentially it feeds into your CRM um, and truly closes the loop that you can see exactly. But does that mean that you could
0: also? So you can fundamentally generate a, you know, you can have them go to a landing page. You could include a absolutely. coupon code. So it could be a sort of yep. upsell, resell, you know, moving to the transaction from the first transaction. Uh,
1: absolutely. Or, or perhaps they've lapsed, right? So in the e-commerce there. world, it would be sending out something to someone to try and re-engage them because they're no longer opening their emails and sending them a special offer. So we did, uh, we got some testimonial back from a, from a retailer very recently and they, you know, they were sending out, reasonably small campaigns out to part of their database. Um, and they're getting an eight times ROI, like, you a know, 28% response rate.
0: So wow. it's, and which you compared know what? to
1: email is like mad, right?
0: <laughs> and your, your timing seems like, from my perspective, timing is, obviously timing has a lot to do with sometimes, you know, tailwinds and headwinds in any business. Sure. But yep. as, you know, Direct mail used to be a really big thing, and then it sort of seemed to die in the ass as everybody Mm -hmm. moved to e-commerce and everything had to be measurable. And then all of a sudden, all the marketing people said, if it's offline, we can't really measure it. Yes, we can do some kind of attribution, but let's move away from anything that's sort of broadcast and hard to measure. And you're actually rebuilding that in an environment where all of a sudden, it seems pretty uncluttered to me because there's nothing interesting that ever comes into my mailbox um, anymore. And so the moment you get something that's quality, looks good, personalized, nice kind of kinesthetic touch, it just gets cut through.
1: Oh, and even more than that, and this is why we kind of, uh, well, I'll tell you about the journey, how we got to B2B maybe a bit later on, but um, the handwriting is key to that too. Mm. So um, when you would have got your sample card or when anyone um, is using the service, when they send out to recipients, these cards are arriving uh, in a handwritten envelope with a real stamp. That in itself means that it's not getting lost in that other type of direct mail. Mm. Uh, and it means that well, I'll give you some stats. So in the US, uh, the average household receives less than ten pieces of handwritten mail a year. So we're pretty confident we've got enough data to suggest it's it's pretty much the case. Hundred percent open rate. <laughs>
0: wow. So Do you that, know what I'm wondering? I remember which is not hearing direct a, mail. <laughs> No, I remember hearing a um I, I know that in the in the UK and I'm pretty sure in the ATL I'm sure by now, but um UK has uh they call it – they had a special business unit in essentially their equivalent tax um, office that mm-hmm. were called the, I don't know, like the clever numbers unit or something like that. But basically they were just a huge team of kind of market researchers and split testers and everything was about, you know, what you write on the, like how do we get people to pay their taxes yeah. if they're overdue for taxes? And it was all about, yeah. you know, how is the handwriting? Do you have a stamp on it? Does it say urgent? Or does it say alert? Or does it say, you know, from your neighbor or like, you know, how they wrote, how they actually write the letter it has absolutely everything to do and so, huge amounts of split testing and the the intricacies in actually getting those pieces right to make the person want to open it. And I imagine when they receive it, how it's presented will also change how they feel before they open it. And then, of course, the way that it's written and how it's presented will change the way they receive it. Um, yep. So then to have a call to action that's got a QR code, like that's just a beautiful. Um, I feel like I should be a sales guy, wasn't it? I'm going to need yeah, some no. permission after this. <laughs> we'll
1: we'll search out with an affiliate link. But, um, <laughs> I'm a convert. Uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that because that is actually one of the pieces of education we have to work on quite a bit with, right. you know, without naming names, real estate people often, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. where they go, yeah, I want, I want this 100% open rate. I want to create, um, you know, to, to get engagement and they want to use it for, uh, cold calling basically or, you know, cold, cold outreach. And I kind of always remind them that you are, you, you're when you send out something that looks handwritten, real stamp, you know, all of that, and it's looking quite personal, you're almost like there's a social contract almost being yeah. established by that because you are going to get people with their guard very much down. Yeah. Um, and if you then, you know... You you open the envelope and the first thing you see yep. is some real estate guy's face like you know three quarters yep. of the of the uh, of the artwork uh, instantly it feels like a bait and switch like you sucked me mm. in the end and then you played me and people will yeah. get a reaction to that so it's definitely better for you know maintaining Boy, relationships like yep. yep you've already got that contact we call it sort of like um, you know, light touch ongoing mm. sort of engagement. But it can be used in that other setting. You've just got to be aware of what game Universal. you're playing, which is yeah. you've got to be, you know, offer value, all of the sorts of things that, you know, are relevant to any salesperson, but make it about them. Don't make it about yourself, you know, yeah. try and be contextual. And we do see that working like other real estate agents that don't go in that direction. They might, for example, go out with, um, house anniversary cards. So they'll go out, they know who in the area. Has sold, you know, has had their property sold, and when it was sold, because they can access yeah. that sort of data, and they'll go out to them in a really meaningful way, saying, "Hey, look, did you realize it's been 33 years since you've been in that house?" Like we can help them create all of this context yeah. from the data. Um, so really contextual. It's about the property specifically. It's addressed to them, um, and yeah, they have a call to action that says, "Look, if you are interested in just getting an appraisal, an appraisal scan, yeah. scan this link, and then that that that, that brings yeah. them into a more traditional well, sort of funnel." So. Yeah, lots of, lots of interesting use cases.
0: So before I ask you about the genesis, um, yep. actually, can you just explain, give the audience a sense of the scale today, you know, customers, revenue, employees, whatever you're willing to share to give us a sense of... Yeah, the
1: um, so we're bordering on about $3 million worth of turnover a year. Um growing pretty, pretty handsomely. So the, uh, you know, pretty much doubling year, year on year. Um, hoping well. to accelerate that a little bit more um as as we go on we have a tiny team it's literally just two people um so both of us co-founders both of us work in the business um exclusively uh and of course we do need to use others to to make all of this happen though so we use uh distributed print models so we use uh Mm -hmm. print partners in the us uk canada and australia um so we have um you know we have a larger team but they're not directly employed by us Yep. Um, they're the people that make, you know, get the, get the product out in the market. Um, yeah, ambition over the next two or three years is to get that closer to 30 million. And it feels like that's doable. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of. So, we're so I mean,
0: there's, I don't reckon there's another founder listening today who's doing $3 million to two people. <laughs> so, I love a variable cost model. And I assume the print partners are a variable cost model, right? Like they're pretty much tagged to revenue. They're all con. Uh, yes. So I mean, it's so.
1: Um, yeah, completely fixed. So that was part of the reason why we don't want to own that function of the business. We yeah. largely want it to be, um, yeah, own costs so that we can, you know, uh, that we can think more of it in the sense of it's, we're selling widgets rather than, um, yeah. you know, uh, variability. That's yeah. come really from my own background. So prior to, to starting. Sorry, car, but the
0: printing, the printing cost is essentially, um, just attached to the revenue of each um, delivery, or Correct. you're paying some kind Correct. of tax yeah. so There's no fixed no, cost so per, base there. It's yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Variable. Sorry,
1: so it's it's fixed in the sense that we know that um, you know how much uh, it's gonna per, be. per unit. Per unit is a fixed cost. It yep. doesn't matter if they you know send out 100 cards in a day or 10,000 cards in a day. We know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. of course, as we scale more, it actually comes down, not the other way around. Yep. Um, yep. And and yeah, that's the, the other challenge with it is it'd be super capital intensive for us to do it any other way. The mm-hmm. um uh, the printers themselves. So we print on you know the latest sort of digital presses, and they're yep. you know, a lazy two million dollars each.
0: so <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we're not too to spend the money not, on that, CapEx.
1: Look, not until yep. we are uh, doing crazy scale, in which case, yeah, we can probably realize a whole bunch more margin. But for sure. now, we've got those. You know, we know exactly what, we are, what our what unit about cost the, is.
0: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I. Yeah, you know, given all the artists that look like they've mm-hmm. done the cards, so are they all contractors? Is it a, sort of, is it a no, marketplace so we, for artists? Yeah, so it's basically
1: that? a marketplace. Yep. Okay. So uh, it's a curated marketplace, though. It's not sort of an any, anyone can play uh, yeah, marketplace. That's, again, you know, we'll get into the reasons why maybe later. But, um, yeah, essentially we uh, reach out to artists or occasionally, well, we get approached by a lot of artists, but occasionally we'll accept one of those artists. Um, right. And then they get, you know, there's basically an agreement with them. They upload their artwork. They only get paid if it sells. So again, yep. we know
0: what our costs are. Associated. Beautiful. Beautiful. Tell me, can you take me back to the start? I'm very curious as to actually your... So A, why you started this business in the first place, what yep. the genesis was, but also your, like, just really quick summary of what your kind of career was before you got to doing what you're doing now and also what role you play in the business when you got a co-founder.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so a bit to cover there. But um, essentially, I... My first job, uh, as a kid, probably not even in uh, pre-teenage almost, um, my family's business was news agencies. So uh-huh. I grew up working in, in stores as a kid, uh, went off to uni and, and, and then still came back into the family business. And so together with my, uh, with my dad, we, we, we built up a chain of around 50 stores around Australia, which was wow. the biggest news agency chain that's probably ever existed in Australia. Um, yeah. and turning over like 150 million a year or something so reasonably sizable. Um and if, as part of that uh I obviously had plenty of experience with greeting cards it was our most important category in the business mm-hmm. we were the fifth fifth biggest seller of greeting cards in Australia. Um so right. reasonably big. Yeah. Uh, I then uh you know we went through a joint venture where we sold half of the business to to a larger retail organization. Um that seemed like an apt time for me to 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 exit. Um but they were quite keen on me actually moving from Queensland. That's where the, uh, the family's business was based, uh, down to Melbourne. So I got poached by them to go and um, basically run their e-commerce. So I'd had some experience with e-commerce prior, um, built a few things uh, along the way, you know, always love that. How old were you at space. this stage? Uh, so this was 2000 and, uh, around 2007. I think, okay. maybe, maybe yep. just prior. So yeah, I was just 30, 30 mm-hmm. or so. mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I'm older than I look. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, uh and the other thing that I could see, you know, 2007, I was in the States. Uh, you know, I was one of those crazy people that bought an iPhone before you can get an iPhone in Australia. Yeah. I had to bring it home and try and jailbreak it and actually managed to break it while doing it. <laughs> but, My brother was um, one of those too. Know, yeah, yeah. So, but the moment I saw Steve Jobs stand on stage and I think I, I'm, I literally can visualize, I went into my, my father's, uh, office and I said, see this? And he goes, what's that? And I go, that's just killed our entire business. Like, which was back then, you know, there weren't, there weren't, uh, mobile enabled websites, but the fact that you could pinch and zoom on, um, on, on the iPhone and move around and actually use the web, I was yeah. convinced that that was, so, the dwell time that was previously taken up by magazines newspapers, I could see that shifting completely to the internet and said, Well, look, this is the writing's a little bit on the wall here. So, we need to divest and, and do other things. And that's when I started to push us trying to do some stuff online. And, um, and then we went through this whole JV thing. And But yeah, so um, so I then left the business. Uh, I then went, re- so that company owned Borders um, Books in Australia oh, and can- Robinson's. So, I then mm-hmm. started running. Uh, the Borders borders, uh, and Angus and Robertson websites and a bunch of websites in New Zealand. Uh, and one of my key tasks that I was uh, charged with when taking on that role was to also look at further future, you know, the digital disruption that was taking place in the book industry at the time, which was ebooks. So So uh, I went and invested in a company uh, on behalf of uh, Group Retail, that was the, the name of the retail chain or group, and uh, invested in a company called Kobo, uh, in, in, Canada, which is still today the second biggest ebook retailer Brilliant. in the world, Definitely. owned by Ratikin in Japan. Um, and you know, we, I can, I was trying to convince them to, to invest, uh, $10 million. I think I managed to convince them, well, they were happy enough to invest a million. And in six months time, that was worth about 20. Um, and when orders was ultimately came to its, uh, unfortunate demise, uh, that was one of the biggest assets they still had on their books. So. Uh, I left the business though. Uh, that business after a year or so realized that, you know, they weren't very good at retailing. And I could see also that that was going to be problematic for the way they were being managed under private equity. Uh, so, uh, and I got poached again to go and work at Samsung. So I started working at Samsung in ebooks and music streaming, uh, digital content, just generally for uh, at that point. The Samsung Galaxy S2. So again, I'm I'm dating myself a fair bit here, but like very early generations of trying to convince people to do anything on Android. So you're working with the likes of News Corp and ABC and trying to convince them that, uh, you know, uh, this, this made sense. And, uh, then at that point, uh, which would have been 2012, somewhere around there. Um, I really just, I had this itch to go and do something else and uh startups weren't really a thing so i went and created a digital agency to try and help other businesses navigate um digital disruption and uh you know helped a bunch of businesses do that um but then the idea of startups did start to become a thing and i started to go hang on that's actually what i wanted to create so i folded that business down um had a bunch of ideas that i was i was looking at and weirdly came all the way back <laughs> to, uh, to to greeting cards simply because they had gone through some disruption. So there are some pretty big players in that space in the UK. No, no but I didn't think they'd quite nailed the the execution. Uh, for mine, what I'd learned through retailing physical greeting cards was that when people buy greeting cards, they're, they're effectively using it um, to, to to sort of reflect their own feelings and thoughts about the recipient. Yeah. Um, but what really made it special was what they wrote in it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the care and attention that goes into writing the message. In some ways, it's almost like uh, an excuse for someone. You know, I'm, I'm giving you a birthday card, so I'm going to take the time to actually say something meaningful about how I feel about you. And for some people, that's the only time they ever say some of those things. They mm-hmm. don't actually even feel comfortable saying them out loud. So yep. for us, it was all about the writing. And uh, we also noticed that when we did some, you know, analysis of this, uh, about a third of people also look like to put little doodles and little drawings in their cards. So we, right. like, oh, we should probably do that too. So we, we sort of went into this whole idea of being able to, um, you know, handwrite and, and doodle inside a card and make it, um, you know, make it personal doing that. So.
0: And just for an example for the audience, I did four. Nephew and niece birthday cards only about a month ago on your platform, and it's exactly what we do in our family. We're always you know like there's usually a blank left hand side of the you know the inside yep. left of the card, right? And so it's like okay, draw a birthday cake, put stars, put balloons, like use colors, like make it interesting, and so. Yeah. But all of that, you've got all these choices for doodling that can just be done for you. I just love that. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. yeah, and, really and co- by contrast, all of our competitors were just getting really fixated on the front of the card. So it was yeah, like yeah. you know they they'd let you put it happy birthday and then Sean on the front of the card, which was fine. Like that Well you
0: quite often see the front of the card and you go, oh that looks interesting. And then you read this terrible message that they put inside and you go, no, nah, there's no way yeah, I put it on the card. It,
1: exactly right. And and that was the thing. They, they they'd they focus there, not focused on the inside. Basically you could just type on the inside and it was, yeah. you know, often limited by characters. It was it was pretty impersonal. So it was like yeah. that that felt like a bit of a disconnect. And we we went and played with that that concept with a a bit. We sort of built a very basic wireframe. Um, concept of how, you know, we thought it could work. Uh, I, I sat down with independent artists and sort of got them to sort of give their thoughts on it. Uh, I also, uh, went across to the states and, and had some conversations over there as well about the same, the same sort of thing. And uh, yeah, generally people seem to like, like the idea. Uh, so we, yeah, we fired up a, uh, an MVP, got something in market at the very end of 2017. Is that okay. Right? Yeah. yeah
0: so it was that six years ago now? Uh, yep.
1: yep. I think that's, am I giving myself? I think that's right. Yeah. Yep. Um, I should know better. The reason why I don't remember that date so well is that we, completely rebuilt the technology and probably don't. The current version of the site is a lot newer than that and, and basically yep. sort of 2020. So, um, yeah, that, those first iterations, not amazing. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges, and I've learned this from my time at Samsung is that, uh, if we were to go down the path of trying to create an app and, and make it, you know, something that you download, um, you know, sure. But at that point, there was probably already half a million apps out there. And yeah. our chances of actually getting onto someone's home screen and being used in one of those top 10 apps is very unlikely. So uh, we went down the path of doing a web app. Now, the challenge of the web app is making it work on every device seamlessly, which is yeah. a huge, huge undertaking. And to be honest, was one we kind of struggled with with that first round of tech. So, yeah. um, yeah, that was, that was part of it, the, the challenge so what, early doors.
0: What have you ended up doing in terms of role split between you and your co-founder? So Tyson,
1: our co-founder, um, he's, he's purely technical. He's uh, tech guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's the CTO. He's, he's an yeah. amazing engineer behind everything that he's given praise for. And I've, yeah, good uh, on your Tyson. Was, I've, take, I've taken credit for. Um, so yeah, no, he, he's responsible for for all of that and does an amazing job like I've dealt and worked with a bunch of different uh developers over the years and he's just outstanding he's, he's yeah. a unicorn um very you know, in- incredibly capable but also able to understand sort of the reason whys and the context and the business yeah well you can uh, tell reason. through
0: the um the way the ux has um, come yeah. together I'm super keen to get into some of the stuff around your uh, the strategy and the business model how, how mm-hmm. do you what is your cup I mean given you've got one of the things that we teach in our so perfect time to plug the Scale Roadmap program for those who haven't registered yet. Um, one of the things that we talk about, we have this um, big module, module three, in our scale roadmap program, which is all about optimizing your business model for scalability and valuation. Um, and one of the one of the lessons in there is all about variable costs. Like where can you take fixed costs and shift them to a variable cost, which you've done absolutely beautifully. You've got artists that are only being paid for their designs when they sell. Mm-hmm. You've got a distribution model where they're being paid a, you know, a piece rate for um, you know, so it's perfectly linked to your revenue. You've got two people in the business in terms of your, your fixed uh, OPEX from wages wage is expensive, which is amazing. What about your customer acquisition um, model? Because you've also got, it's not just consumer-focused, you've got a strong B2B um, side of the business. How much is consumer versus B2B? And then what's your acquisition model? Yeah,
1: so it's about 50-50. Um, okay. And uh, that's sort of skewing more towards B2B over time. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of acquisition, uh, we've done a, a few different things over the years, but for the most part, um, uh, intent-based marketing is what works. So paid paid search has been, paid search, been yep. pretty so good. So Google. Yep. yep. So we can, Google. You know, we can land with a, a fairly reasonable cost of acquisition through that. We're always trying to get that down. Like we don't Gosh, yep. we're not quite profitable on first sale in consumer land, okay. um, which is... But that's okay because our lifetime value is is reasonable so our okay. cost of acquisition is around four dollars $4, dollars um, yep. but lifetime values averages out about 22. 22 um, okay mm-hmm. so it's what it's about okay. on the b2b side have you got what's the b2b side you know significantly better our our, our um roas on that our return on ad spend on that sort of 8x so nice. that's, that's healthy eight times um, roas
0: lots of people would be pretty happy with an eight times roas
1: yeah, and, and and that's just down to the sheer size of the the order that you know, the average then, B2B customer will spend six hundred dollars, which is considerably yeah. more than consumer land. And Magnus. that is of course, I mean, uh that's probably one of the biggest challenges in a business like a business like ours where you're trying to play in both spheres, yeah. is that you're kinda of not one or the other wholeheartedly. Mm. Um so we tend to have to focus um, for periods of time on B2B and then we focus yeah. back on, on, on consumer. Um, yeah. you know, not how the wind is blowing, but sometimes it feels a little bit like that. Like we don't, um, yeah. have the ability to sort of, uh, do both really, really well at the same time, which is one of the yeah. biggest constraints of, of resource in our business. But, um, that said, uh, consumer is very low touch in terms of onboarding. It's, it's designed that way. Um, B2B, obviously, is is a lot more high touch.
0: Now, what if I told you that with just 15 minutes of effort, you could find out the top three things that are going to hold your business back from scaling in a sustainable way so that you can fulfill its potential and you can enjoy it as much as you deserve to? Now, what if I told you in that same 15 minutes of effort, you can find out how your business stacks up against thousands of other businesses who've taken the same test so you can actually see how you compare? If that sounds interesting, you need to head straight over to scalehq.com dot com forward slash growth score you're going to complete a short survey and you're going to get back in your inbox a free nine-page report that's going to show you how you stack up versus your peers and where you need to focus to unlock scalability and a greater level of enjoyment in your business and for a limited time i'm going to offer you a free 30-minute debrief on the report where myself or one of our scale hq founder mentors who are all experienced ceos and have scaled successfully will unpack your specific report with you We've done hundreds of these and so we know exactly how to help you get the most out of the insights in there. There's no selling from us, just lots of value for you. Head over to scalehq.com.au forward slash growth score and get your free growth score report right now. You are gonna love it. Well, it also sounds like you you know you get to profitability far quicker on a business customer given the ROAS and your lady initial spends are a little higher than a single card. Um Correct. what does that meant for how you financed um, the journey? So far have you had to raise external capital is it yep. through cash flow was it
1: yeah so we did raise um so we uh, did a raise of about 230
0: odd thousand dollars really? um with angels or
1: a Vc uh yep so a combination of both so a couple of uh, reasonably prominent angels and um we i think still to this day it might forever be a badge of honor but we're uh, Airtree's lowest ever uh, investment of only fifty oh, thousand right. dollars so um actually was it even that no, maybe I've just overquoted what over it was. Well, They're still having yeah, that investment. Yep, yep, yep. Um So yeah, we we raised back in again. My dates are not great here. I think it was 2017 around then, um, and we've never gone back to to, yep. to raise again. We've been able to do things with cash flow since. So nice. in some ways, uh, that's been uh, pretty good to see. That, but in other ways, it's like, well, why did we? dilute ourselves back, back then when maybe bootstrapping could have been an option. Sure. But uh, I do think that one of the challenges really with a business like ours is, is the VC landscape. So yeah. we are not SaaS. Um, yeah. Everyone who would listen yeah. to your podcast, um, you know, if they're a SaaS that, you know, they're sort of fix- fitting into that square box that, that people are looking for. We get weird stuff. And most of our audience
0: is not SaaS, by the way. Most of them are, yeah. most of them are services businesses. Are. Yeah.
1: And 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 they will know then that um, you know, that uh, most Aussie VCs are pretty low risk mm. and are it's desperately it, yeah. looking for um, you know, SaaS businesses that have a, a very clear um recurring revenue model that mm-hmm. um they can sort of pin, you know, future future growth on. Yep. the weird thing with us is that we do kind of have elements of that you know we have yep. these subscription models that um well not subscription but uh to to, to play in the business space you, you pre-purchase credits so uh, okay. that's also been advantageous from a cash flow perspective so we take money mm, up for, 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 uh, a, yep. for our b2b's and similarly our consumers we get paid before anyone else gets paid our printers or artists so from a cash flow perspective we're always ahead yeah that's what's allowed you to
0: stay profitable
1: yeah um but the other thing uh around that b2b space really versus SaaS, which infuriates me honestly when we thought about going out and raising was that uh they don't like the seasonality of our product so naturally being in the greeting card space the most common time that people are thinking oh better go and send someone a greeting card is around the holidays and christmas
0: um
1: and that means that uh they bit lumpy it it is it, it peaks at christmas time it, uh, it just does um sorry i'm just getting yeah, all and they
0: like they like things to be um just constant month on month incremental growth no peaks no troughs just slow exactly well right. sorry fasting incline.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and and whilst we can give um amazing recurring like we know that people will come back and continue to use us um yeah you know, they just don't like that that seasonality element which is which is strange. It's sort of like, do you not expect Christmas to come back next year?
0: So, given the um, and I've and I've worked in having worked in um, education for many years, uh, they're very sort of, they're very seasonal. You have absolute you know peaks and troughs based on when people make decisions about taking them education, whether it's adult education, school, or whatever. Maybe corporate's a little bit different, but um, the rest of it is um, is pretty seasonal, a fair bit of seasonality in it. Given the ambitions that you've got, given the revenue you at right now and the ambition that you have to get to where you want to go, are you thinking that you can continue to do that through cash flow or are you going to go back and raise again so that you've got material capital behind you to do so? Yeah, so we, we're we kind of tossing that up at the
1: moment. Um, I think if we really want to go um, really large, we will potentially need to go back and and consider yeah. uh, VC. and. I think the metrics are really strong and that should be more favorable than, than when we've gone back and done it previously. But uh, yeah, I think if we want to tackle some of those really big incumbents that I mentioned uh, that sort of have existed for longer in other markets, uh, we likely have to do more traditional advertising like television and these sorts of things, which are hugely cash-period. Really?
0: Yeah. So, what are the biggest constraints? Uh, so, outside, you know, cash flow and your ability to reinvest earnings, what are the biggest <laughs> constraints to scale for you at the moment? And how you trying to tackle that?
1: Yeah, for us, it's 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 resource, so it's time, uh, the most precious of all resources. So there is there's always just so much to do and never enough time to do it. So um, yeah, the, a team of two can get a lot done, but never enough. <laughs> so uh, we, you know, we. We know that if we had more resources, probably in the short term, we, our productivity would go down um, significantly. But potentially longer term, yeah, that will allow us to do more. At the same time, uh, we try and work smarter rather than harder. So if we can get our B2B side of the business to to be as uh, easy to onboard people onto as it is for consumer land, uh, we will be, uh, you know, that that kind of frees us up significantly in terms of time and we can just go after much larger uh, enterprise sort of level opportunities.
0: Well, and do you see, you know, given the market, so the market, you said you've got distribution in Australia, UK, US and Canada. Was those the four key ones? That's correct, yeah. Yeah.
1: So they're the key home markets. We also do send cards into 50 other odd countries. Um, But uh, yeah, the, the US is massive. Like the US is... Uh, our growth engine these days. Um, they really understand relationship they... marketing.
0: Right, okay. And are there competi- are competitive landscape? I mean, obviously, it's a much bigger market. Um, yep. you know, 10 times the size of an Australian market, yep. so they are you there 10 times the size and quality of competitors, or do you still find yeah, so actually there's... you've got an edge because of the way you've designed your business?
1: There are, there are definitely more competitors, um, but I'd say they're not better, so uh, you life. know, their, their approach is, is different. But the thing that really sort of stands out to me in the US is that we've come at it from a much more scalable um, way of doing it. So to put some context into that, so uh, a lot of the competitors we come up against use robots to, to do the handwriting so they're sure. they're investing in a lot of capital um, to have these machines that hold pens and and write on cards but more than that they're having to produce cards separately then they put them then they take the card over and they put it to give it to a robot to then write on and then they're manually putting that into an envelope putting a stamp on it so there's a lot of manual labor handling uh, so manual labor involved in handling the product now the u.s is obviously a very low labor cost market because of the way they operate you know it's people get paid peanuts um which is fine but Well, it's not fine. It's bad, but, um, that their model is sort of built on people power, whereas we've gone with technology and scale. So, uh, we could turn on a dozen more printers, uh, quite easily, uh, and scale very significantly. Whereas they have to build new robots and that's slow and cumbersome. And to give you an idea of how quickly we turn our things around, if you placed an order right now, it'd be in the post. Well, we're talking on a Friday. It'll be in the post first thing Monday, but if we were talking midweek, uh, it's it's in the post the very next morning, so it's very, very quick. Right. and that doesn't change at peak times. we we still turn it around that quickly. So some of our competitors are saying in early November, hey, don't forget to do your Christmas cards this week and we're saying, uh, hey, you got all the time in the world, you're fine until sort of mid-December, don't don't stress. Um, and typically people leave these things to last minute, so we've got a huge advantage over them in that regard.
0: do I expect kind of human psychology play all the way through uh, your business model given, People are over the cards. Um, yep. if you think from just from a strategy perspective you know fundamentally it sounds like you've probably made a couple of big bets that if you mm-hmm. in retrospect you know there's been a couple of things that you've really invested in that you feel like have made the biggest difference in your success today and those may be different things that you feel like you need to invest in to get you know competitive advantage in the next five years what have been the couple that have got you to where you are today and how are you thinking about the next Five years to ensure you retain, uh, you know, a strong competitor advantage in the future.
1: Yeah, great question. The um, I suppose in terms of the things we we invested in um, early on was was that customer experience that you alluded to before. So we really spent time looking at the way other sites worked versus what we were trying to do, and most of them are very difficult to use. Even those competitors I'm talking about, the a reasonable size in the US, their their systems are just like oh like pulling teeth like it is difficult to use them um and that's you know we sort of really wanted to make sure that wasn't the case and we're, we're considering you know future rebuilds that make that even easier again but certainly in the consumer space um you know weird things like all of our competitors insist that you sign up before you can actually send a card and we're like no no you don't need to do that you can just jump on find the card start writing in it just like you would if you went and bought it in the store no. and We'll we'll just sign you up at the end if if you want to be signed up. Um, Yeah. So you know we put a lot of thought in into that, and then of course, obviously, the handwriting was was a big part of it. Like to get that right, we we went and got we created a patent. Um, We've been that patent's been granted in the US. You know, so we spent a lot of time trying to get those elements right. Um, So those things certainly got us to this point. I think where we and, need to be considering, sort of like, how do we stay, um, you know, really relevant and, and continue to sort of, you know, exceed what our competitors are doing? It's all going to be around just continuing to to, to let you know lean into that, continue to just think about the customer experience, making it easy for people, um, you know. If, if someone's trying to get a handle on how to use our b2b platform we're, we're currently providing them with a bunch of videos and and tutorials and often I'll do a zoom call with them and, and work them you know work with them on on how to use it um that to me says it's the product's not easy enough yet you know um, we want to get that learning yeah. down to to nothing so when we consider how we do that. It's about getting the time between the problem and the solution to be as short as possible. What currently happens is someone comes onto our B2B site and says, yeah, I want to get a sample. I want to create a free account and and see what this thing looks like. And then they delay their decision until they get the sample. Most people do. Some don't, but most people will delay it until they know that the quality of the card is right and what it looks like. Um, So what we want to do going forward is try and get rid of that delay because all that does is make the sales cycle yeah, a lot longer. So we want to get, you know, if they want to get the sample card, let's get them into the editor, let them start to experience what makes our service special. Because we do know from, from talking to people, especially when deals are lost, we find out that they've, you know, they've shopped around, they've got a bunch of different samples from a bunch of different companies, and all they're doing is judging it on the sample alone. And if they get right. a finicky, you know, they like the idea of robots and they go, oh, well that one looks slightly different because the robot held a pen um, even though we've got our own technology that tries to emulate that. And most people think it's, it's you know, does a really good job of it. Um, that what they're not evaluating on is actual ease of use. Like how easily can I do the things I want to do to get this thing mm-hmm. to mail? How, how scalable is that? Does it have the right APIs? Does it have Zapier? Does it have um, an interface that allows me to set up really interesting rules or use, you know, use the personalized QR codes. Uh, so it's, it's, it's we've got to lean into the stuff that we're really good at and let people know about that a little bit earlier on so that's that's wow. a big part of, of what we're doing currently and i think has a big impact over our growth over the coming years the others are just um chasing after things that we think we would be a really good fit for that we haven't necessarily seen ourselves being a fit for so uh customer sorry employee team employee reward and retention has has become a bigger issue especially from the working from home transition yeah. so a lot of organizations have now got teams that are you know quite spread out they don't get into the office regularly they're not getting that sort of touch point physical engagement with each other um, so how do you keep them motivated and and incentivized and, and acknowledge when they do you know good things um, we have seen and it's kind of people have pulled us in this direction, but they you know, people come have come to us ever since the pandemic and, and wanted to do um, you know, employee birthday cards, employee work milestones, employee yeah. uh, rewards and recognitions. So yeah. leaning more into that space, we have an amazing sort of gift card platform as well that allows people to add gift cards and, and redeem those gift cards for you know, in Australia it's 120 odd retailers that they can add a gift card um, from. So all of a sudden, your organization is sending you a card, possibly you know, in the handwriting of the CEO with a personalized message specific to you and the, your contribution to the business. And they're, they're including a um, you know a gift voucher, giving you $50 to spend on Amazon or whoever it might be. And um, there are other platforms out there that have been super well-funded that do that sort of thing and do it terribly, <laughs> to be honest. So it's kind of like, okay, well, we, we should be going after some of that. Um, at the same right. time, like they're... We we know that there's just so many other opportunities um, for us. We know that e-commerce is absolutely huge. You know, uh, getting people to come and transact, like that example I gave earlier, and getting good returns out of that. The biggest challenge, yeah. in, and, and mine as a CEO, is what I guess all CEOs have, have got is the prioritization. Which which thing do you go and tackle first and next? Yeah, um, because mm. you know, there's literally, uh, yeah, dozens of of ways that. Because our handwriting tech is really quite quite clever, like it's it's um it, it really does emulate.
0: Okay, so Patrick, conscious of um, the time we've got left, and you've been super generous with your um, time today. So before I sort of thank you and do a wrap up, I'm really interested. I mean, you've had some. Uh, I mean, there's very few businesses that have scaled to your size with two core team members on a super variable cost model. So I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, you know, I, I expect. Your business is actually going to be an example in future programs that I do with founders as a as a great example of how to really stretch your thinking. Whether they yeah you know, they may not necessarily try to replicate uh, the model entirely, but it's a great challenge for people to really think differently about their yep. cost structures. Yep. Um. One of the things I'm interested in though is you've taken a bit of angel and you've taken a little bit of like okay, I guess they you consider that VC right Well, Go angel absolutely. even though it was under 50 grand. Yep. Um. So you've probably had some, and you've Grown up and you know, with your dad, and you say you've been around some really interesting people. What's, so I expect you've you received probably a fair bit of advice over time, or you've absorbed some stuff. What's the advice when you think back to the last um, several years and you know, really since probably 2017 when you had that MVP? What's some of the most valuable advice that you've received that really has impacted how you've scaled successfully so far? I, I think it's
1: an oldie bit of goodie is having the right people on the bus. Like that for mine is is critical. Uh, you know, I thank you for for calling it out around, you know, being able to scale with, with only two people. That's something that we're kind of proud of. But yeah. is totally not doable unless you've got another person who's as crazy and as hardworking as I am. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of fundamental to it. Um, the I guess the there's been lots of other little tidbits along the way as well, but I do think that that, that one is fundamental. You know, if you uh, don't have the right co-founder, um, that's a risk yeah. for disaster. Um, and people've got to believe in that same vision as well. So that that really is 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 pretty fundamental to it.
0: Outside yeah. of and that just to draw can't just yeah. draw yeah, a straight there, because I've been yeah. thinking I've been thinking a lot about that mm-hmm. um in the last week or so. Yep. And it is it is a real challenge as a founder when you are trying to build um, scale and therefore you end up in these periods where um, if you've built a business that's not built on that sort of leader model and you have lots of costs and all it, you lots of delivery yep. costs and, and so on and so on, you can easily fall into the um, space of having to just hire the best person available because you're running out of time. And that best person available, you know, in your heart of hearts is like B minus, maybe like C plus. And you're going, I don't want to make this higher, but hmm. I just need someone to do the work. Yep. And it's such a it's such an awful decision to have to make because you know they're not a um, main player. Mm-hmm. However, what I would really challenge founders around is, yeah, you know, if you're building a business it's actually quite people dependent, again, you end up with quite a lot of people. No, you're not going to get A players in every one of those roles. Absolutely not. It just doesn't happen. it'd yeah. be wonderful. We yeah. don't get that choice. However, I really challenge you to be patient uh, if you are listening when you are hiring key roles because you're um, the key roles that, and they don't have to all be senior leadership roles necessarily, mm. but like. The key roles that you know are absolutely, yes, everybody's job is important, but there are key roles that are like the difference makers. Mm -hmm. You have to be patient on those because it is nothing but sort of disappointment and pain, particularly if you get a B minus. To be frank, you're better off getting a D plus and getting rid of them quickly if you're going to make a mistake. B minuses suck because they take a huge amount of time. They're never bad enough that you find a need to get rid of them. They just drain you and they just can't step up. And so you, you have a real quandary because you're like, well, I can't really move them out. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not great for the culture, but they're not terrible. And they're not a great performer, but they're okay. And that's actually, I think, the worst kind um, to have in the business because you just can't do anything. Why? would well, it's difficult to do something. Yeah. Um, real challenge. So thank you for drawing, um, for drawing that out.
1: Yeah, I think, as I said, it's a pretty obvious one, but... Um, it. <laughs> To your point like uh, if you have someone who's an underperformer and, and and other people are performing at a higher level uh, it's it, you end up with like misalignment um, you know, even though I'm in a small team now I've worked in bigger teams I know that no one likes to be the guy carrying the, the weight of someone else in the team not carrying it and yeah it's hard to get it
0: high you know? performers hate it. So yep. if you've got a couple of A players and you're that's hanging right. on to some C pluses, the A players are going to leave. So Correct. That's, that's why right. you have to get rid of the C pluses.
1: Exactly right. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um any final anything that you wish I'd asked you or that you think that we've missed today um Patrick before we before we wrap up? Well,
1: just on the the um the point you were raising before about the business model. So uh it's mm. interesting how we ended up there. So it's actually because of my experience in ebooks and uh music streaming that i kind of went back to greeting cards and the reason why was because i was going to do it digitally first and and then know my costs per unit so i get down to those unit costs um, was because it's it was the experience with digital products and the digitization of those products and the fact that they're basically infinitely scalable and i loved it I really loved, specifically coming from physical book retailing before that and and those types of places where we didn't need to own inventory. We didn't need to own, you know, we only paid for it when we needed it. And, yeah, I know that's not a fit for all businesses, but I have, you know, I I try and help people out wherever I can. And one of the things that I see is that often people will bring forward those big capital outlays um, and, and buy stock or buy things produce things even before they've worked out whether there's product market fit or any fit for the product. God, and if you can gain that in any way, like in this day and age, you know, good quality renders, throw up on a website, see if anyone actually wants to buy the thing before you build the thing. Uh, if there's any way that you can no. do those sorts of tests, I, I would urge you to. I mean, we couldn't avoid um, some, some upfront costs, but for most of us, for mostly it was just time and effort to build out the technology. We didn't have to go and invest tens of thousands of dollars with each, with each of our printers when turning them on. We yep. literally just had to convince them that we would get a, we were going to send them scale. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah, for us it was a technology investment. But I do see very often other founders sort of going, "Oh, well, you know, before I can prove out that this um, customized bespoke blah." Uh, is going to work. I need to go and build the blah, and I'm like, well, no. You could just Maybe. create versions of that thing, even your prototypes, and see if there's an appetite in the market for it. Because yep. you know, you can sink yourself and a lot of money before you've worked out that this thing's actually going to have any sort of momentum. Like that's all right. We and got
0: effort, you know, yeah, yeah, and like get in your you know, your 20 customer interviews done, quick, bloody, it, smart. It, it, because exactly. you, you know, in yep. the absence of that, real discussion and testing you just jump at false positive like one person goes oh it's a great idea cool yeah yep. 50 grand into it and yep. set up and slide yeah mm.
1: uh, I think you know technology plays have obviously got the advantage of of not necessarily having you know it's mostly sweat capital up front which is okay. somewhat more tolerable but you know if you're you know, uh, mortgaging your house to to, to see if a thing flies right. uh, I admire your boldness but I would say uh, you know try and find a less risk way you know less risk uh, high risk way of of validating your your ideas and concepts
0: um, early on. Well, one of the things I would say to founders who are listening who are going, yeah, but I've got a fundamentally, I've got a service-based business that's delivered by people. It's not scalable like that. However, I guarantee you that inside your business and the relationship that you have with customers, particularly if you're in a services business, you have a lot of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And knowledge-based products can be delivered generally at very low costs. Absolutely. Sometimes almost nil. So they could be courses, they could be books, they could be... You no know, pre-recorded webinars. It could be like there's so many ways to package up knowledge into there something is. that's actually scalable that you can put a paid strategy behind. Yep. So it may not be a disruption to your business model. It might just be a nice adjunct to your business model that helps you, um, you know, serve the same customers or different customers, but in actually a far more scalable way, in a more variable cost way that can help to really improve your overall margins to grow the heavier, you know, fixed cost um, business that you've already got. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. Yep. Um, but I think you've got to think about how do I remove that scale constraint? How do I build something that can be delivered where my costs are particularly variable? And then what is what's the acquisition model going to be um, to ensure that I can actually, if it works and people like it, I can put some fire underneath it um, yep. and that can continue to scale. Yeah. And yeah, any, test, well, any Patrick, testing
1: you can do that that saves your dollars, uh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Test, test, test.
0: Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, uh, Audience, um, community, founders, people who are listening, uh, apologies for our little technical uh, disruption that we had (laughs) not too long ago, but we got through it. Um, And I'm sure you will have absolutely loved um, the episode with Patrick today. Look, the best thing that you can do, uh, and the the one thing I would ask you to do, is to take a screenshot of this episode or just click share on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever you're listening on. Send it to a friend because that's how you're going to get. The kind of knowledge and the value that you just got from Patrick's mind into the hands of somebody else that you care about uh, and hopefully stimulate some new ideas and some new opportunities for them to be able to scale their business. Thank you so much Patrick, we really we uh, are we're very grateful for your time and I look forward to catching up with you again and uh, hearing how you've uh, transitioned from three 3-0 mils to 30 mil. Awesome, thanks Sean. Pleasure. The team here at ScaleHQ hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Now, if you want to achieve scale, but you want to know what's going to hold you back, we can help. Head over to scalehq.com.au forward slash growth score to get your free nine page growth score report. That's going to help you understand where your top three barriers are to scale. And if you'd like, we'll even do a free debrief on the report for you with no obligations or expectations, just lots of value from some CEOs who've scaled to help you on your journey. That's scalehq.com.au forward slash growth score and find out what's holding you back from fulfilling the potential of your business today.